0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrisone, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrisone's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrisone fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we concluded our look at the closing arguments from the defense. On today's installment, we begin our examination of the prosecution's summation. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness.
0: It's nearing midday on Monday, April 11th, 2022. With Edward Belenkis having completed his closing argument on behalf of the defendant, Michael Barrisone, Judge Steven Taylor invites the state of New Jersey to offer their summation. Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn rises and addresses the jury.
1: May I please the court, counsel, members of the jury, good morning. If you remember back to my opening statement two weeks ago, I told you that I was intentionally leaving things out. And that I was intentionally leaving things out because evidence doesn't come from me. doesn't come from Mr. Belinkus, Mr. Dininger, Mr. Bennett. Evidence comes from witnesses. It comes from people who walk through that door, put their hand in the Bible, take the oath, and agree to testify. So no matter what Mr. Belinkus may have said in his closing, what I may say over the course of the next hour, that's not evidence. The evidence comes from the witnesses. And I start there because your verdict will be based on evidence. It's not gonna be based on passion or sympathy or emotion. It will be based on evidence that you heard, evidence that you saw. Mr. Belinkis just spent an hour telling you what he thinks I think, what he thinks I'm going to argue. I hope that I won't leave any questions for you when I'm done. The verdict sheet that you're gonna be given has one person's name on it, and that's the defendant, Michael Barrison. He's the one person on trial. He's the one person that you're going to go back in that room and deliberate. Not about whether you like or dislike Lauren Kanerak. Not whether you like or dislike Rob Goodwin. Not whether you like or dislike me or Mr. Bolinkis, Or frankly, whether you like or dislike even the defendant. The verdict sheet is going to ask you whether the defendant is guilty, not guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity. Over the course of the next hour, I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm not going to tell you what to feel i'm going to point out things that i think the evidence shows that i think the evidence will help you to decide this case i don't have any remarkable catchphrases for you i'm not going to cry i'm just going to ask you to follow the facts and apply the law now when you all got your jury summons several months ago you were told What to do, when to log on to your computer, when to have your camera on, when to turn your camera off, when to be in the courthouse, what time to be here, where to go, when you can take a break, when you can talk to people, what you can talk to them about, what you can't. But the one thing that no jury is ever told is how to deliberate. When you go back through that door after Judge Taylor gives you the law, how do you apply the facts and the evidence that you heard to the law the judge is going to give you? So I hope that over the course of this closing argument, I'm going to give you something of a framework. You can use it, you can ignore it, but hopefully it will give you a logical starting point for how to examine those facts and how to apply them to the law. Mr. Belinkis ended his closing by pointing out those burdens of proof. And if you remember back to my opening statement, I told you, the burden of proving the defendant guilty rests with Mr. Bennett, it rests with me, it never shifts. That's our burden to prove that the defendant is guilty of attempted murder and of possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose. So that's where I'm gonna suggest that you start your deliberations. But you're also gonna hear the judge tell you that the defendant is claiming insanity in this case, and that the burden of proving insanity is on the defendant to prove. That's his burden. So I'll suggest that you address that second. Now with respect to attempted murder, the judge is gonna tell you that a person's use of a deadly weapon allows you to infer that their purpose was to cause death. The reason I start there is because that is such an important part of this case. Why did the defendant use the weapon that he used? It may seem obvious. It may seem simple. It may seem basic. But I'm starting there because he didn't use something that was in his pockets. He didn't use his belt. He didn't use his fists. You heard about the search of his truck. You heard about some of the things that were in the truck. The shovel the tire iron, things that when he drove to the house were there in the truck with him. You heard about the patio area. There was a rake there. There's flower pots. There's chairs. There are a number of other things that he could have picked up in that moment. And yet when he got into his truck, when he drove to confront Robin Lauren, he went there with a deadly weapon. He picked that deadly weapon before he even got in the truck, before he even drove to the house, before he even got out of the car. He had picked that specific deadly weapon this is the gun this is the gun that he picked out of his safe to use and i point that out because you heard testimony you heard evidence that he had his own guns he had a 380 caliber semi-automatic bless you handgun in his safe but what did you hear about that gun there's no firing pin there's no extractor there was no ammunition for that gun that gun was not an option You heard about the 45 revolver. But again, you heard that that gun was in the safe, but there was no ammunition for that gun either. And lastly, you heard about his 22 single action antique revolver. The importance of that being a single action, if you remember the testimony, and if you're not familiar with guns, is that in order for him to fire a shot, you would have to use your thumb to pull that hammer back to prime it, to get it ready. And then pulling the trigger would shoot a bullet. But to shoot a second bullet, you would have to pull the hammer back again and pull the trigger again. So for each successive shot, he would have had to pull the hammer back and then shoot. You also heard about the way revolvers are loaded, that you don't just put all the bullets in at once, that you have to actually turn the cylinder and put the bullet in and turn the cylinder again and put the bullet in. It takes longer to load. And that, that gun, for example, only held six bullets. Compare that to the gun he did use, Ruth Cox's. Nine millimeter, small, had two magazines, one of which was loaded with bullets and that he put into his pocket, making sure that he was taking more ammunition for that deadly weapon with him to the scene. Do you recall when the safe was searched later that day? This is what it looked like. The case where the handgun was, the case that Ruth Cox gave it to him in, with that orange safety magazine in it. The orange safety magazine is out. The two magazines are, are gone. And there's a box of 9 millimeter ammunition right below the gun. Open and with bullets missing. Why is this important? Because the judge is going to tell you that just based on the fact that the defendant used a deadly weapon, you can infer that his purpose was to take a life. And he didn't pick up this deadly weapon when he first saw Lauren. He didn't pick it up when he first saw Rob. He didn't pick it up when he first got out of the truck or when he first drove there. He picked it up in the office out of his own safe. He knew when he opened the safe and took that gun exactly what he was going to do. His possession of that gun wasn't accidental, it wasn't incidental, it was purposeful. Now that inference, again, is important because the judge is gonna tell you a number of things about the law with respect to attempted murder. But he's gonna tell you that essentially, Mr. Bennett and I have to prove two things to you. First we have to prove that the defendant's purpose was to cause the deaths of Lauren Canerac and Rob Goodwin, and second, that he did something that's what's called a substantial step. Again, I'm gonna discuss why the evidence shows that the defendant is guilty of this crime. Do you recall where the shooting happened? I'm sure you do. You heard a lot of testimony about it. It didn't happen in the defendant's office. It didn't happen in the barn. It didn't happen at one of these times when Lauren Cantorak was supposedly creeping around and sneaking behind bushes and popping out of the dark. It didn't happen when the defendant just happened to come in contact with her. In fact, you were in testimony that the defendant and Lauren Cantorak had not even seen each other on August 7th. Everything that was going on between them in this week leading up and on the day that he's charged with trying to kill her, they hadn't even seen each other that day until he went to find her. That's important because Ruth Cox gave the defendant that gun in the stables, and she said that she saw him take that gun back into the clubhouse in the direction of the office, the same place that we just saw where the gun case was found, where the orange safety magazine was found. The gun was in the office, it was in the safe, it was at the barn. The defendant was last seen in the office at the barn. And yet the shooting happened all the way a quarter of a mile up and down by the farmhouse, a place where the defendant had gotten into his truck and driven to.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
0: Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn began his summation by suggesting that the jury begin their deliberations by assessing whether the defendant is guilty of attempted murder and possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose and then offered up evidence that supported the inference that Michael Barrison's purpose in driving to the Canorak residence with a deadly weapon was to cause death. Shellhorn next pivots to offer the jurors a framework for reviewing the testimony of the two alleged victims in this trial.
1: Before I talk more about the elements of this crime, I do want to discuss credibility. We heard a lot about the credibility of the witnesses. And basically, Mr. Belinkis said, you can't convict a defendant because the only evidence that he's guilty comes from two liars, two, I think he said, despicable people. They can't be believed. Well, the judge is going to tell you that you're the sole <laughs> judges of the facts. You decide credibility. Not Mr. Belinkus, not me, not the judge. It's you, the deliberating jurors. And then you do that just the same way you do every single day of your life. You talk to your spouse, you talk to your kids, you talk to your parents, coworkers, friends. You're evaluating, is what this person telling me reasonable? Is it likely? Is it probable? Lauren Kanarek had two bullet holes in her chest. You saw the clothing. There were bullet holes in the clothing. You heard about the testimony about the bullet holes, the bullet hole in the side of the, of the house. And Mr. Belinga said, Morgan Canerac was shot twice in the chest, and that, like in a, a cartoon, one of those bullets was able to go out her back and somehow curve up and go out through the top of the, top of the house. Does that sound reasonable or probable or likely to you? You heard the testimony, and again, you'll have these exhibits for your deliberations, about where that reconstruction showed that the gun had been shot. That it came in through this door, grazed across this mat, and came at an upward angle through the back window. And if you remember, with, with the diagram, that basically shows that the gun was shot somewhere in the area of where that bush was. Physical evidence, uncontradicted by anything, that corroborates what Rob and Warren testified to learn about the state of the gun, that when Corporal Heimer gets on scene and he pulls in and he sees two men struggling on the ground and he sees a woman bleeding and he rolls the defendant over and underneath the defendant, not on the ground like Mr. Belinkis would have, you believe, underneath six foot four, Michael Barrison's body is the gun that Rob Goodwin is literally struggling for his life. I'm not exaggerating, that's not hyperbole, I'm not just saying that to make you feel emotional. You heard the 911 call, the 911 call where Rob Goodwin is is saying, are you sending anyone? Are you sending help? Hold on, he's moving, he's moving. If you move again, I'll break your arm. His arm isn't broken at that point. Rob Goodwin is saying that while the, the 911 call is still connected. And then when Corporal Hymer comes in and sees this scene and rolls the defendant over and finds the gun just like that, just like Rob Goodwin testified, when I looked back, I saw the slide was back because the gun was out of bullets. And I was just holding him on the ground, waiting for someone to get there. (coughs) And Corporal Hymer, who's working a road, uh, third party road detail or whatever he called it, gets a call that there's an active shooter at this property. And he pulls in by himself. And he says he can't see what's going on in the backyard. There's a huge dually, a big silver pickup truck in the way. And he comes around, and he's got his gun out. He doesn't know what exactly he's going to encounter. And he sees a woman bleeding. And he sees another man saying, this is the shooter. This is the shooter holding him down. And he pulls him off, and he finds a gun underneath his body. And he takes the magazine out, and he throws it. And what does Corporal Heimer say? Not Rob Goodwin saying if you move, I'll fucking kill you. That's Corporal Heimer saying that, and it's all recorded. You heard it all on the 911 call, which corroborates everything that Rob and Lauren said happened. This attack didn't somehow happen before the 911 call, and then I guess they had time to, you know, walk around and and plant evidence in certain places, plant a cell phone in a certain place. Do you remember where the defendant's cell phone was? on this table, right here, the exact place where Rob Goodwin and Warren Cantorak say that they see the defendant. Both of them testified they didn't see him get out of the car. They didn't see when he walked over behind that bush to hide himself behind the bush. They couldn't see if he had anything in his hands. And yet Mr. Belingas would have you believe that after this shooting happens, that after they beat up Michael Barrison, they're going around planting cell phones in different places. What else did you hear about the scene? Corroborating what Lauren and the opposite. Well, emergency personnel are, are, are showing up. Corporal Heimer is there, Job, uh, Officer Werdenberg's there, Officer Hensley's there, and now it is a free-for-all. There are officers there, there are multiple ambulances there, they're trying to separate people. Isn't it more probable and likely and satisfying to you that somebody moved those cell phones and put them at the base of the umbrella? not Rob Goodwin or Lauren Cameron. You heard about the weather that day. You heard about the fact that within about an hour of this shooting happening that the skies opened up and you saw the pictures. You don't have to take anybody's word for that. You saw pictures of evidence that's literally in inches of standing water because the rain came down so fast and so hard. And Mr. Belenke says, well, they didn't, they didn't look for fingerprints on the soaking wet shell casings. They didn't look for fingerprints on this or that. He said they didn't look for gunshot residue. You heard that they looked at the clothing and that it was all soaking wet. You heard that that's a tool that they use. It doesn't show definitively who the shooter is or who the shooter is not. It's a tool that they could possibly use. So back to Lauren Canterack and Rod Ligl. Back to credibility. Would it be more satisfying to you if Lauren Canerac came through that door, came in here, Mr. Belinkis held this up, put her hand on this, and said, I'll tell the truth. And then Rob Goodwin said the same. And then they testified to exactly the same words, exactly the same things. Would you feel like that was rehearsed, like that was fake, like that was made up? Or do you find it more satisfying that in this unexpected moment, and I'll get to the defendant's state of mind and his emotional state in a moment, but they both describe that he gets there and he's calm. They can't see him. He's hiding behind the bush, and he says words to the effect of, how can we end this without a war? And Lauren Canright comes down off the step to talk to them. Then he lifts up a gun, and he points to the gun. And when she's no closer than I am to Mr. Belencus, he starts shooting her in the chest. And Mr. Belencus says, well, you can't believe anything she says, because at that point, when her body cavities, her torso is literally filling up with blood, Her her lungs are punctured, you heard that testimony, and her body is filling with her blood as it's pumping, not into her veins, but into her body, and she feels like
0: it's an eternity.
1: You heard her other 911 call. Was that fake? Was she acting? I've been shot in the heart. Help me. Michael Barrison shot me in the heart. Was that fake? And then Mr. Belinkis did an act where he walked all around the courtroom and showed everything that he thought that Ms. Cantorak was testifying about what she did. I don't remember her her reenacting that for us. I don't remember her doing all that. It's your recollection that it controls. That's Mr. Belinkis's version of what she testified to. If you think about what she actually testified to, she said, I didn't know where I went. I disappeared. I walked around, and I'm patting my chest. She didn't believe that she had actually been shot in that moment. And Rob Goodwin, again in that moment, is struggling for his life. He sees the gun, that picture that we saw where the slide is locked back because it's out of bullets, and he's fighting for his life. And he's just trying to hold the defendant down until police get there. Doesn't all of that corroborate what Lauren and Rob said? The last thing I'll mention is the dog. You heard a ton about the dog in this case. You heard the dog. You heard this vicious, you heard Cujo barking on the 911 call, barking, yapping. I can tell you when I'm wrestling with my kids and if the dog is there, the dog jumps in and the dog is not Cujo, I don't have a vicious junkyard dog, but my dog has a tendency to jump in there and kind of start nipping and and getting into the mix with us. Isn't it more logical and probable and reasonable to think that after the defendant had just shot Lauren Kenner, taken a shot at Rob Goodwin, and Rob Goodwin is literally struggling for his life, that that's... When these bites occur. Now, the issue of credibility doesn't just apply to Lauren Kanarek and Rob Goodwin. It applies to every witness. So, every witness who came in here is subject to you considering are they worthy of your belief or not? Did they testify with an intent to deceive you? Were they evasive in the way they answered the question? Now, you heard a testimony or an argument from Mr. Balinkis about Stephen Tarsius And I'm sure you all remember when Mr. Tarshish testified. My impressions of Mr. Tarshish are that he was very prepared. He was very professional. He was very knowledgeable about what was going on. And I would submit to you that it was not a mistake that he didn't say anything, not a word on direct examination about that eviction complaint being fake. Mr. Balinkis brought out everything he brought out. He's such a great cross-examiner that he got the truth out for you. Do you remember when Mr. Tarshis testified? Mr. Tarshish testified that on August 5th, he sent a letter to Lauren Kenneth. He sent a letter that basically said, things aren't working out here. You need to leave. He said that letter wasn't signed. And he was asked the question on direct examination. Did you send a signed copy to her, too? And he said, yes. Then he was shown a verified complaint. That's what he called it, verified complaint. He said, yes, I sent this through the uh, courier service or something of that nature on August 6th to Lauren Panorak. I sent her that eviction notice. That was all the testimony you heard about it on direct examination. And it wasn't until cross-examination when he was shown a copy of that verified eviction complaint that he said, well, this was never signed. That wasn't real." Michael Barrison wanted me to send that to scare her into leaving. The man whose defense in this case is that he was crippled by a delusion of fear, such that he had to go and kill or be killed. This same man is telling his lawyer to send Lauren Panerat a fake eviction notice to scare her to leave. And then that witness left that detail out when he testified on direct examination. You have to question everything that every witness said, not just Lauren Panerat, not just Robert Fugler. So the defendant is telling his lawyer, send her a fake eviction. Do you remember when Mary Haskins Gray testified, and I asked her about some of the text messages that she was exchanging back and forth with Michael Barrison in this week leading up? And there was a text message that she had sent to him. It's in evidence, you'll have it for deliberations. Can we please just tell them to leave? Still, no one has told them to leave. And his response was Monday morning. I'll take care of it Monday morning. Meanwhile, he's talking to his attorney behind the scenes. Send her a fake eviction notice. Let's try and scare her to leave the property. And the question was asked, who would do this? Mr. Belenke said that about Lauren Kanterak over and over and over. Who would do this? Who would do this, he screamed. The defendant is doing the exact same thing to her. What was going on at 411 West Mill Road in August of 2019 is not hard to understand. It's based on emotion. And you all know that because you have life experience. I'm sure you've had disputes with people, disagreements, whether it's at your job, whether it's with a family member, it's at school. You understand how some of these politics work. People don't necessarily want to address something face to face. And so they do it through back channels. So what was going on at this farm, you may not know all of the ins and outs. I think Mr. Tarshish said that the equestrian community was kind of incestuous. So you may not know all the ins and outs of the dressage community, but what was going on there is no different than things that we've all experienced at various points in our life. So take, for example, that there are various levels of rider. You have people like Mary DeFranco, who has the means, she has the wherewithal, the ability to own horses, to own number of horses, to keep them at farms. She can take off from work for weeks at a time, travel to the farm, go train there, and she basically said she does it as a hobby. She enjoys doing that. And then you have someone like Stephen Tarshish, who testified he's more of an enthusiast. He likes to ride, he said, five days a week, 15 hours a week. He said he competes in competitions, but he's also realistic about his capabilities, about his limitations. He knows he's not going to ride in the Olympics, but he just loves it. Then you have people like Lauren Canera and Mary haskins Craig. These are writers who are training because they do have aspirations to get to those higher levels. And I think you heard Lauren testify. One of the reasons that she didn't really want to or like working with Mary Haskins is because she felt like they were sort of too much of peers. They were too competitive. She wanted a trainer, somebody who had been there, who had been to those highest levels, someone she wouldn't be in direct competition with. And that was one of the reasons she didn't want to work with Mary Haskins. But you have these people who, they do have those aspirations to get to the, to the higher levels. And then at the very top of the sport, you have the people who have been there. Lloyd Martin, Philip Dutton, Alison Brock, the Olympians, the Grand Prix, creme de la creme, the internationally known riders. And they all came in and they testified for Michael Harrison. They said, we accomplished those things because of this man, because he helped us get to that level. These are his friends. Lauren Cantorak testified that one of the issues that was going on in that week leading up to the shooting is that her career, her riding career, was being threatened. And the very people that the defendant calls to testify in his defense are the, the elite. They're the people who are at the top, the people with influence, the people with power. And they're here testifying in his attempted murder case about what a great guy he is. He's legendary, he's brilliant, remarkable. Mr. Boyd said, I love the guy. The defendant is sending Mary Haskins text messages that says, I will get her a lifetime ban. He is out to destroy her ability to compete in this sport. And then the people that he calls to testify sit on the USEF board of directors. The same agency that the day before the shooting, Mary Haskins is going to the UPS store making copies of 750-some pages of bad information about Lauren Kenrack, putting in the overnight mail and sending to the USEF. Who would do this? Who would do this? Apparently, it wasn't just Lauren Kenrack. The defendant was doing the same things to her. Now, I said before, this wasn't a random shooting. This wasn't just the defendant happening to come across Robin Warren in in a dark part of the property and I know that Mr. Balinkis pointed out, well, you had people like Mike McGrain testify. And Mike McGrain said, oh yeah, there was one time that Lauren Kenarack was dressed like a ninja and she came jumping out of the dark at me and she had no shoes on, she had all black on, and it was terrifying. And then I pointed out the day that this shooting happened, he never said a word of that. He never said a word. Does that make any sense to you? Is that at all satisfying? There's no question these people were not getting along. I am not asking you to go back and deliberate and think that it it wasn't on both sides. You heard about all the Facebook posts. You heard about calls to the town. You heard about calls to 911. You heard about the police coming, the town coming, reports to the USEF, reports to SafeSport. This is two groups of people that are not getting along and do not like each other. But that's not a delusion. When the defendant went to confront Lauren and Rob that day, he was acting impulsively. He was acting emotionally. But he was acting purposely. And that's the standard for attempted murder. Whether or not the defendant acted with purpose. Did he surrender his restraint to impulse and to emotion? And did he act in that moment without stopping to think? Yes. There's, There's no question about that. That is what the evidence shows. But the evidence doesn't in any way show that Warren Canerac and Rob Goodwin lied about when the defendant got out of the car and was holding a gun and pointed it at them and shot at them. And I would submit that the evidence shows the defendant is guilty of his crime.
0: And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we continue to hear the closing argument from Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.